later when you are climbing, you know, high above your piece or on a really hard route, you know, you're thinking less about is this rope going to catch me or what's it feel like to fall? That, that's not in your mind anymore. You're focusing on what your true objective is, and that's climbing the route. Episode 275, Dakota Waltz tells us about rock climbing in North Dakota. This episode is sponsored in part by Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure special rates on life insurance for health-conscious people. Learn more and get a free quote online at healthiq.com adventure. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hey friends, Kurt here. Excited about today's show, and I want to kick things off a little bit differently than we have been by reading something that our guest wrote recently. Morning light reflects bright off the white granite ledge as my pal Patrick is slowly pushing our rope up pitch four of the Muir Wall of El Capitan. A local climber of immortal fame joins me on the large ledge. We each quietly feed and take rope while enjoying the morning view of the valley down below. He asks about the words North Dakota that are painted on the brim of my helmet, and I tell him it's where I come from, the greatest state in the Union. Of course, as any climber would, he asks if there's anything to climb there, and I tell him it's the third flattest state in the country, but a desperate climber could probably find something worth their time out there. Living in the Midwest is kind of like living in the golden age of discovery for limestone choss piles, soft sandstone towers, and obscure boulders. There are still all kinds of new territory to be discovered. Untamed and unwanted cliff bands along lakes and rivers and prairies still waiting to be climbed. So... Our guest today is with the American Alpine Club and has recently written a guidebook to climbing in North Dakota, of all places. Dakota Walls, welcome to the program. Howdy, happy to be here. Cool, man. I gotta ask, because this is just two coincidences. The first one is your email starts with DeWalls and you're a climber. And now, is that on purpose? Yep. Uh, uh, If you're asking about my name, that's just kind of <laughs> pure luck. I just... That's it's not a joke. It's not a nickname. Um, my parents had no idea that I'd ever be a climber. That's just kind of how it happened. And you just finished writing a guidebook to climbing in North Dakota, and your name is Dakota, Dakota Walls. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, yeah. man. You know, when I yeah. first started talking over email with you about this, I was like, "Is that like a pen name, or I mean, is this just maybe this is destiny? Is what it is." Yeah, I, I I tell people that I'm a living, breathing namesake. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Well, I'm excited to have you with us here today. For starters, let's tell people who you are. So, Dakota, you grew up in North Dakota, right? Yes, sir. Fargo, North Dakota. Well, tell us about that and how you got into climbing. Uh, well, I mean, it's not the easiest thing to do when you're in Fargo. It's it's far away from anything, let alone just climbing. Um, it happened about high school when uh, the girl I had been dating for uh, most of my young adult life had broken up with me, and I realized I needed something else to do with my time in my life. And so I went to the local YMCA and took the ballet class there, and then, you know, there went seven years of my life into climbing. <laughs> so you got hooked right out of the chute. Pretty much, yeah. That's that's how it happens, though. That's not uncommon for a climbing story. The first time you do it is usually... Uh, you know, it's it's the portal into the rest of your life a lot of times. 
Yeah, you know, I don't do a lot of climbing these days, though I do climb. Uh, but I learned to climb in Oklahoma. A lot of people oh, yeah. would, would question that, too. The Wichita's? Actually, I have not climbed there. I grew up in northeastern Oklahoma, so farther north. And okay. so it was the uh, the bluffs and things along the rivers in the foothills of the Ozarks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You spend much time in Arkansas, too? Quite a bit. You bet. Oh, yeah. I, I cut my cut a lot of my teeth down in the sandstone of Arkansas, like Horseshoe and the Sam's Throne, places like that. Yep, yep. Did you uh, do any climbing around Jasper? Oh, yeah. Jasper, yeah. Uh, Jasper, uh, Arkansas or Jasper, Wyoming? Jasper, Arkansas. The yeah, Buffalo Jasper, River Arkansas. Area. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, you got, you got Horseshoe Canyon there. You got Sam's Throne, Candy Mountain, Cave Creek, all kind of stuff. I, you know, I live and breathe for northern Arkansas climbing. It's beautiful there. I don't know if a lot of people think of northern Arkansas when they think of climbing, and I'm sure that they're not normally thinking of North Dakota either, but maybe even yeah. less so. You say here this is the third flattest state in the United States. Yep. And that's that's quantified by elevation gain and loss. So, um, you know, at the highest point and the lowest point and all of the points in between, there's the least amount of differentiation. So I think it's only beaten by uh, Florida and maybe Louisiana. You know, it's kind of like riding a cross-country skiing guide for Florida or Arizona. <laughs> it, it, it really is. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it doesn't have a lot of uh, target audience, so to speak. I think it's so cool, though, because what you've done here is you've said adventure is everywhere, and we're going to find it right here in North Dakota, even if it seems like it may not be the place. You know what I mean? Well, absolutely. And that's, that's the whole idea of, of why I love the Midwest so much is people underestimate it for, you know, the flyover country, which leaves a lot of opportunity to find things that haven't been found. Now, obviously, these things might be, you know, less than world class climbing or biking or hiking or whatever, but you're going to have them all to yourself. And there's a genuine uh, opportunity to find adventure out there still. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And I, I love that. I uh, I moved to Colorado while I was in college. And then I mm -hmm. moved back to Oklahoma while I was still in college. And leaving Colorado, because I just fell in love with the adventure here, the mountains and everything that they have to offer. And as I was headed back into Oklahoma, I was kind of sad to be going away from my new love, you know. But I thought, I'm just going to find the adventure that's in Oklahoma. And I was amazed. There is so much you can do in a state like Oklahoma that you may not even think of adventure-wise. But if you look for it, it's there. And I'm sure that that's what you're talking about. Amen. You hit it right on the head, man. You hit it right on the head. Right on. Well, let's talk about a little bit more of the world-class climbing. And then I want to go back to your guidebook. But um, tell us your climbing resume just a little bit. Where do you climb? Uh, well, right now I'm living in Denver, Colorado. So Anywhere up and down the Front Range, you name it. Uh, my favorite places right now are Rocky Mountain National Park and El Dorado Canyon. Sure. Um, but I've I've climbed anywhere from the East Coast to the West Coast and everywhere in between, all the unknown spots on the side of the road and all the world-class places like your Indian Creeks and your Yosemites and your Zions. It's, uh, I love it all, and I, I, I love the idea of climbing on something new in a style that is new to me or foreign or... You know, or, or just exceptionally unique in any way, or exceptionally ununique. I just, I love getting to climb any, anywhere. Sure, you bet. What's your favorite route on the east face of Longs? Well, I've only been up uh, Longs once, so I have to say it's the only route that I've done, and that's um, 
the first half of the yellow wall and the forest finish. Okay. And how would you rate the climbing on longs compared to other places you've been? Humbling. <laughs> very, very humbling. Uh, so longs is the only 14er that I've ever actually even hiked or climbed. I did the, obviously it's the, the diamond that you're climbing on. Right. But um, just before I'd gone up there, I'd returned from a trip to California to climb the west face of uh, El Capitan, which I was kind of using that as a athletic gauge to see, you know, how well we were going to perform on Long's Peak. And the west face of El Cap was about 2,000 feet and it was around the same grade. So I figured if Long's is only a little over 1,000 and it's about the same grade, we should be just fine. Um, but my flatland lungs still have a lot to learn about climbing an altitude. And it was very humbling and very exciting experience, to say the least. Oh, yeah. Well, what is the base elevation of El Cap? I, d- I don't even know. Uh, that's a good question. It's, it's, it's nominal. It's, it's uh, you know, I, I don't even know what it is. It's, it's nothing that was going to make your lungs hurt, that's for sure. And then the base elevation for, like, the diamond route on longs, we're pushing 13,000 feet. Yep, it's about 13 to get to the base of the first chimney opening up to the diamond, yeah. Wow. So that is, uh, that's substantial altitude. Anytime you get above treeline, at least in my experience, once you hit treeline and above, stuff gets way different. Yeah, yeah, you still have to, you have to monitor your, your vitals way differently. You know, it's, it's easy to lose your breath and it's easy to forget to drink water and eat food because you need more of it. And it's easy to, to, you know, wake up eight hours later and realize that you've been hiking with a severe headache and you haven't been taking care of that. And that's, you know, those are all, all things that are, seem very small, but when you're spending, you know, 12, 24, 36 hours, you know, up at altitude, it can be very, very <laughs> uh, debilitating when you're on the sharp end of the rope. Oh, yeah, no doubt about it, man, no doubt. So why climbing, Dakota? Why did you take this up? I mean, you are, I, we already said you were looking for something to do when you dumped your girlfriend or she dumped you, however that went, but... Why climb? Oh, it was definitely she dumped me. That's definitely how it went. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good question. Why climbing? Um, that's a question that everybody always seems to ask, and uh, that's a question that no matter how hard I ask myself is never an easy one to answer. Um, for me, it gives me this connection to the outside world that is unattainable in any other way. It's it's one thing to drive up to Boulder and drive through El Dorado Canyon and and peer up at the mountains and listen to the creek. And that's all very well and nice. But to be able to connect with these features that have been here for, you know, thousands upon thousands of years and be able to climb them and stand on top of them and enjoy their view and have that connection with the earth is is extremely special. Not to mention the athletic uh, endeavors involved is very, uh, very fulfilling. Yeah, I, I'm with you. And I, dif- different people are wired different ways. I know a lot of people who come to see nature. Mm-hmm. I have to go do nature. I can't just see it. You know, yeah. it, it makes me crazy. I have to be touching and feeling and experiencing it. I want to be out in it. I want it to talk back to me, you know? And Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like reading the cover of a book or like the back of a book and reading what it's about, but never cracking it open and getting to experience it. So ah. there's, for me, what's the point? Yeah, very well said. There's, I'm going to say something poetic here. This is not real hard work to say this, but touch stone. And that may sound silly, 
But for someone who's a climber, I think they know what I'm talking about. To touch the rock, to connect to it, and, and you know, you're hanging off of it. It's supporting you. It's keeping you alive in some cases. Mm-hmm. There's a, a dance there. Even though it's just a, a, a wall of granite, let's say, there's something going on beyond just it being a wall of granite. Absolutely. Undeniably. Especially when it's when it's a, a piece of of the earth that you get to experience over and over again. You know, it's one thing to travel across the country or the world to, you know, climb a beautiful feature and get to experience that and have that. But it's another thing to get to go to a wall two or three times a week and climb the same routes and have that connection, have that experience. And, you know, over time, that becomes your home. Yeah, there's a relationship that develops there. Absolutely. You know, just thinking about that, when you get to know a route... I'm sure that it really calls to you. I mean, the first time you get up and it's kind of like, wow, that was something I could do that a whole lot better. I want to do it this way. And you dream about it that night. And then, you know, you're at work that week. You know what I'm talking about. You want to get back and do that again. Oh, only too vividly. I I have a project that I'm working on, uh, a climb that has not been sent yet up, up near Fort Collins in Colorado that, that I've been working on with a, a group of friends of mine for the better part of three months. And... Rarely is there a night that I fall asleep when I'm not dreaming of every single move, rehearsing everything to finally, you know, send that and be a part of that rock. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, it's it's really cool to hear someone who loves what they're doing. They're passionate about their sport. You know, I can hear that passion come through loud and clear. Why would you recommend that other people consider rock climbing as a sport if they haven't done it yet? Oh, wow. That's a that's a. That's kind of a a double-sided question there because on one hand, I would say don't go climb because there's already enough people out there climbing and, and, uh, you know, taking away from the idea of of seclusion. Right. But on the other side, on the other side, truthfully, most honestly, I, I always encourage people to try climbing because it's one of the most beautiful parts of my life and... You know, if, if, if someone else could find what I found in the rock, if someone else could find, you know, solitude or, or, or you know, personal endeavors or some kind of connection or, or, or find something that they've lost in themselves like I have, then I, I always encourage people to look for that. And it's a big world. You know, the climbing routes that are really close to the front range get crowded. No doubt Yosemite, mm-hmm. you know, it gets crowded. All the famous crowding or, or climbing places can can seem like they're getting a lot of use, but we can expand mm-hmm. our horizons. There are places that are more remote, that are less touched, that are just waiting for people to get out there yep. and discover them. So, 100%. And that's, again, that brings it back to what I love about the Midwest, is that we don't have these problems of overcrowding or not being able to find a campsite or what have you. When you go out in Missouri and you go out to down to Warsaw or Raven Rocks or, or Trapper's Camp, you know, nine times out of 10, you're the only person out there. You know, you don't have to worry about, you know, the traffic getting there, or you don't have to worry about whether or not someone's going to be, you know, climbing your routes, or you have to wait in line, or if you have to find camping somewhere else, you know, you you can always depend on it being, you know, a full value experience. (laughs) Yeah, but you're likely to get someone walking up saying, hey, what you doing there, boy? (laughs) <laughs> that's actually uh in missouri a lot of the crags are along rivers and lakes and you'll get a lot of fishermen who will kind of troll past and take photos or shout at you, or <laughs> right. you. 
And it's wonderful because that's a lot of fun to, to give people an opportunity to experience something that's a little out of character for what they're used to seeing there. Oh, yeah. It's rarely what they expect to see when they go out fishing for, for a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, that's so cool. So do you do free climbing over water? I know that this is becoming a, a, a much bigger sport than it used to be. Oh, like deep water soloing? Yeah. 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 I mean, whenever I can, there's not a lot of opportunity for it here in Colorado, but um, whenever I have the opportunity to do it, I absolutely love it. There's a few routes that I put up in Missouri that are deep water solo routes that are super fun and the best thing to do on a really hot summer humid day. Well, tell our, our listeners what that is in case they don't know what we're talking about. Oh yeah, absolutely. So deep water soloing is, is basically, uh, you're just rock climbing without a rope or anything else. The only thing you're using to, to climb it is, you know, your hands and your shoes. And instead of, you know, climbing super high and then if you fall, you fall on a rope or a pad. When you fall, you just fall into the ocean or the lake or the river, whatever you're climbing over. You know, I think climbing without the rope adds a whole new element of uh, to the experience. And uh, I wouldn't recommend anybody that they climb without a rope and be reckless. But when you have something under you like water that you could land in safely, then how cool is that? You know, it's the uh, in theory, just being able to land in water is, is pretty casual. But, uh, you know, when you're climbing maybe even even 10, maybe 20 feet above the water, it can be kind of a rush. It can definitely be a rush because, you know, what happens if you land on your side or you, you know, land on your ear and you, you know, pop an eardrum or something? It still has uh, a level of excitement that you'd expect from not climbing with a rope. Yeah, there's definitely a potential penalty for a fall. I mean, everyone's done a belly buster off the high dive. We know what that feels like. <laughs> yes, for sure, for sure. <laughs> so that adds a little bit more excitement i would think to the sport as if trad rock climbing is not exciting enough already Mm -hmm. yeah no doubt about it this episode is sponsored in part by health iq health iq advocates for a health conscious lifestyle do you exercise five times a week? If so, you deserve lower rates on life insurance, don't you? Health IQ uses science and data to secure special rates on life insurance for health-conscious people, including avid cyclists, runners, strength trainers, vegans, and more. In fact, research has shown that those who frequently exercise with intensity have 22% lower cancer risk, 56% lower heart disease risk, and up to 34% lower risk of early death. Historically, you get penalized for family history, BMI, and other attributes, but you don't get rewarded for your health-conscious lifestyle. Health IQ rewards you for your health-conscious lifestyle with special rates on life insurance. Learn more and get a free quote at healthiq.com adventure. That's healthiq.com adventure. And we thank them for sponsoring our show. Get outside with the Colorado Mountain Club. The CMC offers 3,000 outdoor skills courses, excursions, and special events every year to adventurers of all ages and abilities. Join today and receive an additional three free bonus months at www.cmc.org slash adventuresports and use discount code podcast. shift gears to the American Alpine Club. Sure. What is the American Alpine Club? You are Denver membership coordinator, right? 
Yes, sir. Okay, so tell us about this. So uh, for those who aren't familiar with the American Alpine Club, we've been around for as long as climbing, basically. And we have tons of services that we offer our members and the community. Um, and I could go on and on and on about all the benefits we have for our members and what we do for the community, but I'll just give you like the highlights. So one of the biggest things that we do for the community is we have a whole list of grants that we offer every year. And these grants can be uh, climbing related or they can be like conservation related. So we have some that will like help, you know, do a crag cleanup or help restore um, a trail that's really badly damaged from a storm or overuse. Uh, We have grants that will help replace anchors. And we also have grants to do research. Um, As far as climbing goes, we have a lot of really cool grants that help get people out to the outdoors. Uh, my favorite one is the Live Your Dream grant. And we actually actually just finished uh, reviewing all of our grants for the Rocky Regions yesterday. But what the Live Your Dream grant is, is whether you're a member or not, you can send us what your dream climb is. And you know, if you're awarded the grant, you'll get you can get anywhere from a hundred to a thousand dollars to go do your dream climb. And that yeah. could be that could be a five seven. It could be your first trad climb, you know, in your backyard, or it could be doing a first ascent, you know, in Peru. It's just all up to you know what your application looks like. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. you know, previously on the show, we've had some climbers on. We've gone through what the climbing ratings are. We've talked about anchor systems. We've talked about dynamic versus static ropes. I mean, we've covered all the bases. And I would encourage our listeners to go back and listen to some of that. But we should hit some of those highlights because I know that we have new listeners who don't know what the equipment's all about. And they're like, yeah, it sounds cool, but how does that work? So why don't we go ahead and just touch on that? Sure. Uh, I mean, so whenever someone asks me about how the climbing grades work, the very first thing that I tell them is that they don't work. (laughs) Right. And what I mean by that is that they're very subjective. So... Um, if I say a, a climb is this grade, someone might say it's a completely different grade. And that's all just based on, you know, uh, whether or not they like climbing on granite or sandstone or limestone, or if they're tall or short, or, you know, if it's a trad climb or a sport climb, there's infinite amount of possibilities that could change the grade, but it's all just kind of guesswork. And it's all a hodgepodge of everyone's consensus usually. So that being said, um, the Yosemite decimal system is used for rope climbs and how it works is we go off of, we start from the hardest hiking. So you start hiking goes from, you know, I don't even know, is it class one to class four? And after class four, you start going to class five, which is where the technical rock climbing comes into play. So if it's a 5.0, that's the easiest technical rock climb that you could encounter. And then that decimal system goes all the way up to now what is it 515 plus or so right so it it doesn't really make sense because technically most decimal systems um a 5.5 would be way more than a 5.10 but you know a 5.5 is half as hard as a 5.10 in theory right yeah so it's not really decimal but it gives you a way to label a route and it's pretty subjective right absolutely absolutely i mean i can't tell you how many times i've come off a route and said wow that was supposed to be 5.11. That felt like it was a 5.12 plus or something. That was really hard. You know, what I've wondered about is the, the, the better climber that has really, really amazing skills might take on a, a route for the first time and say, okay, that was a 5.10. And then I would go up there being 
you know, not as experienced and skilled and strong. And I might head up that thing and, and I'd be like, five, ten, are you kidding me? Do you think that people oh, yeah. kind of get a bias once their skill improves? Uh, it's it's very possible. I, I think I've always been a firm believer that the best route setters, the best, best first ascensionists are the one who can put a good grade on something well below their skill level or well above their skill level. Typically, yeah. people who are putting up a first ascent or setting a route in a gym are much better at you know defining those grades closer to their peak levels um but you know like i said there's a lot of a lot that goes into it i mean i might climb a route and think oh yeah that was 510 and you know the next guy might climb it and think well wow that was like really hard because maybe there was only one or two bolts on it or they were they're not used to climbing you know friction slab or something like that Sure. So yeah, I'm sure there's bias, but you know, there's bias in every single direction. And that's why I said earlier that it's a grading system that doesn't truly work, but it's the best you can get. Well, just for general context, I'm going to throw a couple things out there and you can rebut this, but I would say like in a gym, uh, a five, 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 six, five, seven, the first day you've ever climbed, you probably could do those, especially this five, six, five, five, you could just go do it and it'll be a great experience. And yep. then with more experience, you, you start getting stronger, but you also learn the techniques, which is huge in climbing. And mm-hmm. then you start being able to do like the 5'9", 5'10", level stuff. You get to 5'11", 5'12". Now, in my mind, you're getting pretty darn good. That's tough. There are a lot of people that have climbed for a while that may not be able to do a 5'11". Yeah, you know, I, I read somewhere a, uh, a while back that the theory is that any healthy mortal can climb 512 if they put, you know, their enough dedication into it. But once you pass that 512 range and start breaking the 513s, that's when, you know, you know, you have to have a little something else to be able to even do that physically. You know, your body has to be designed or or or, you know, have some kind of advantage to even get past that point. But yeah, a lot of times people rarely get to the 512 range. That's usually when people start to feel very accomplished and myself included. (laughs) Yeah, sure. No doubt. Well, I've even heard people say that, you know, whatever the next level is, it has not yet been done. It used to be, well, that may not even exist because maybe it's not climbable. Right. And then someone does it and they say, that's a 514. And other people go, I don't believe you. And then someone else climbs it and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a 514. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of the way it works, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you, know, you look back and you know, 510, originally 510 was supposed to be the rating that could not exist. It was supposed to be so difficult that if anything felt close to being the hardest thing ever even possible doing, it would be rated a 5.9. And then you get advances in technology, you get better ropes, more specifically, you get better climbing shoes of sticky rubber. And once you break past the what was originally thought to be impossible, it kind of makes me question if there really is anything that is impossible with enough time and advancement in technology. Yeah. Well, at some point we're going to have anti-gravity boosting systems to help us do stuff. That, <laughs> I mean, I'm being yeah. ridiculous, but it, it, it could be, yeah. you know, I mean, eventually, I mean, maybe the point past five seventeen is just aid climbing with gravity boots. Who knows? <laughs> That's awesome. So we're kind of geeking out on the numbers here. Let's bring some context into it just for fun. Describe sure. a five ten. I want to know how big the handholds are, how far they are apart, how much strength it takes, how much skill it takes, that sort of stuff. Yeah, sure. So provided that you're on a wall that's like dead vertical versus like overhung or like slabby, 
Um, the holds might be, you know, like what we call like a mini jug where it's like you can get all your fingers on it and maybe you can even get to your knuckles on it. Um, if the holds are that big, they're, they might be sideways or upside down for underclings. Um, but if they're just kind of like ladders where you can pull straight down on them, they might be a little smaller, like a crimp, where you only get the first knuckle of your fingers on there. Um, and 510 climbing is where I believe where it really starts getting fun. You know, anywhere from 5-0 to about 5-8 or 5-9 is, you know, very, very easy. And it's kind of a ladder. There's very little skill involved. But when you start getting to 510, you can't just use your physical prowess to get up. You start you need to start utilizing technique and footwork and, and you know and learning how to actually climb at 510. So that's when it gets really fun. So give us an example of technique that makes it possible. I mean, what's different, you know, different than climbing the ladder that allows you to get beyond that 510? Well, sure, yeah. So when you think of a ladder, you think you know you have two handholds that you can pull straight down on and you have two footholds that you can stand straight up on. But when you get to that 510 range, you might have a hold the same size, but it might be completely upside down. So you have to learn how to put your hand up upside down and, and get your hips real close to the wall and, and reach high or reach to the to the side to be able to get up there. You know, you have to use your feet to smear or flag to hold your balance on these smaller holds or these large holds that are just put in a difficult position. So it really turns into a lot of uh, body position and, and holding everything at just the right angle and knowing how to get something to stick that normally you would just slip right off of if you didn't know that trick. Well, sure, yeah. There's there's a lot of 510 holds that if I didn't use technique, even you know myself, if I didn't use technique, I couldn't climb up them. I'd have to use, you know, put my body in the right position or, or flag or learn how to smear, do this and that. And, and learning those techniques is, is what happens in the 510 range, which makes it so fun. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Good description, man. Thank you for that. I think that that helps a lot for people that don't know what climbing is about. Now they get a feel for, wow, there's something to this. It's it's not just going up something. It's a strategy and a technique and a skill set. Oh, yeah. It's it's definitely not all fitness. If it was all fitness, I would be, I don't know, doing chess or something else because I'm, I'm a very skinny, not big, beefy, strong guy at all. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about ropes and anchor systems just really briefly. We don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but what is it that makes climbing safe? Uh, well, that's that's an interesting question because I don't usually use the word safe for any any aspect of life. Um, to consider anything safe is to to not. I think that to consider anything safe means that you're not really doing the math, right? Um, and that is to say, you can say driving down the street is safe until you get hit by a drunk driver or something. You can say. Climbing in your anchoring system is safe until something blows or an unexpected something happens. So what I say instead is, is how am I building my anchors in a way that I'm aware of the risks and the ability for it to hold falls or do what it needs to do? Right. So that, I know that doesn't answer your question, but I just wanted to stop there and, and clarify that I don't ever use that word because when you start thinking things are safe is when you start not being safe. Yeah, and I love that. I absolutely love that. I kind of baited you a little bit there, but I, your answer was perfect because I've said on the show many times, you can you can do things, a lot of adventure sports that people think are really risky, really dangerous, and you can do them in a way that is actually a much lower risk. It's just risk management, right? But a much lower risk than things that people do every day. Driving absolutely. a car to work is a perfect example, right? We We're familiar with it, so we think, well, okay, we'll just be careful and it shouldn't happen to me. But 
hardly a day goes by that you don't see someone that got plowed into, you know? Yep. Yep. And that's, and that's exactly the same thing. You know, it's, it's, you don't think about getting in your car and driving down the road. You don't think about that. Maybe when you were in high school and you first got your license, it was pretty scary and you thought it was super dangerous. Um, but you've been doing it for 20, 30, 40 years now and it's not a big deal. And that's the way, you know, for me, that's the way climbing is too. You know, when I first learned how to belay, I was terrified. I thought like, all I have to do is let go of this rope and this person could fall and hurt themselves or even die. But after doing it for 20, you know, 20 some years or however many years you're doing it, you know, you get used to it and you, you understand that as long as I'm doing A, B and C, D can't happen. Right. Or as long as I, as long as I'm making sure that I did the math over here, I'm mitigating my risk over there. Sure. Sure. Well, I interviewed John Fielder a while back, and I loved his story. He wanted to climb the flat irons as a kid, so he <laughs> stole someone's clothesline and got a claw hammer, and he and his <laughs> buddy decided that was enough, that they, they could be safe with that. And sure. so <laughs> it, it's a funny story, but, you know, you're 13 years old, you, you saw someone climbing in a magazine or on the internet or on television, and there's an old lasso hanging out in your buddy's barn. Why is this not a good idea? Personally, I would think it's pretty obvious why using a lasso or a clothesline isn't the best idea. Uh, the clothesline trope is definitely something that is in climbing's history, but that was far, far before we had great access to high-tech ropes. Right. So, you know, it's, it's something as easy as, like, just, you know, getting a climbing rope. It's not difficult. They're not expensive. For what they do, they're not expensive. And, you know, I, don't, I can't say much about lassos. But I have used a clothesline before, and I would never climb it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you, man. So climbing ropes are technology that, number one, it, it's very unlikely for a rope to break under proper use. Number two, it's dynamic, which means that it stretches to absorb the force of the fall. Those are the two things yeah. that make a climbing rope work, right? Well, yeah, and and, and, climb, and climbing ropes don't break. That's 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 kind of the old saying that... Ropes don't break, they cut. Right. So, and, you know, let's say back in the 1950s when, um, I, I forget their team, but the team was, let's say they're doing the first ascent of, of higher cathedral spire in Yosemite, right? Back in the day, that was pretty badass. You know, that's like a five, six climb, and they were like going for it. Like that's cutting edge stuff. The first ascent of higher cathedral spire, five, six route, and that was badass. Right. Nowadays... That's not so badass because, like we said before, you have that technology gap that's been bridged. So now that you have the sticky rubber and you have the, the dynamic ropes for when you fall, you're just taking a nice soft catch, hopefully. But back then, you just had you know a gold line that didn't stretch, and it might, it might even snap under those forces. And if you did catch you with a big fall, you know all that force is going on to your, you know, your waists or your hips. And so nowadays, when all that force goes on your waist or hips, it's greatly mitigated by the stretch of the rope. Right. So that's what makes climbing uh, a sport where the risk can be mitigated, right? Oh, yeah. Maybe that's sure. the right way to say it. It's because of the technology and the equipment. And so it opens it up for so many people to enjoy it. Um, people that normally would look at something and say, I don't think climbing's for me. I mean, heights are spooky. I don't, I don't like the idea of falling and all that kind of stuff. With today's technology... I think they can have a ton of fun if they go try it. Oh, absolutely. That's something you hear all the time is, you know, you can't really force someone to get over their fear of heights, 
but a lot of people are afraid of falling. Like that's the very first thing you'd be concerned with. And it makes a lot of sense because it's climbing. But I always tell people that if you're afraid of falling, that's not a big deal. Because if you're just going to go top rope in the gym or outside, you're not actually falling. Right. If you if you let go of the wall, provided your belayer is doing their job, if you let go of the wall for whatever reason, you don't fall. You just kind of dangle there, right? Yep. And it it's hard mentally, I guess emotionally might be a better way to say it, for people that are really nervous about falling, it's hard to accept that they're not going to fall. Oh, absolutely. And that's just like anything in life before, you know, if you're afraid of, you know, getting in a fender bender or you're afraid of uh, falling off the swing set as a little kid, you know, it, you're going to be afraid of it until you do it. And then when you do it a couple times and you understand, you realize that, oh, this isn't a big deal or this is how I fall without getting hurt. You know, once you do it enough times, you realize it's not a big deal. You know, when I first took up uh, whitewater kayaking, sometimes the rapids would get pretty intimidating. And uh, one thing I started doing was selecting the right kind of rapid and leaving the boat on the shore and jumping in and swimming the rapid on purpose. Nice. Well, what they did is it taught me, oh, this is what the water feels like. So if I don't run it right in the kayak, this is what I'm going to be experiencing. And then I go back and then boating was, you know, way less intimidating, a lot more fun. That's rad. That's really rad. Yeah, I would say my my equivalent to that is just going to the the local crag and just taking whippers all day for no reason, just to just to get it out of your system. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I go to the gym, even though you know I've been a <laughs> lots and lots of times, when I go to the gym, I, I usually say, "Okay, I'm going to go up three feet and fall to my belayer." I want to feel the rope catch me, and I want them to feel the weight and the amount of force that that's going to create, and then that that sets it for me. Then I'm good. Let's go. You know. Yeah. I, that's that's a great mindset to have because later when you are climbing, you know, high above your piece or on a really hard route, you know, you're thinking less about, you know, you know, is this rope going to catch me or what's it feel like to fall? You're, that That's not in your mind anymore. You're focusing on what your true objective is and that's climbing the route. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. Never run out of camp stove fuel again. The 180 stove is a natural fuel stove that eliminates the need to carry heavy, bulky fuel canisters. With a generous 6-inch by 7-inch cooking surface, it folds away into a clean, compact, self-forming case that is small enough to fit inside your pocket. At only 10.4 ounces, the additional weight and space savings allows for other important items in your pack. 
Get more information at 180tac.com and look for it in retailers near you as well as online. And we have so much that we could cover with climbing. It is it's such a <laughs> yeah. fun sport. But I don't want to uh, not get to this guidebook for North Dakota. Tell us about that. I mean, first of all, what kind of climbing is there? But I really want to get into your experience in putting together this book because this is novel. Yeah, I mean, it's well, it's not a novel, but it is novel for sure. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, climbing in North Dakota is it. I tell people the best part about climbing in North Dakota is that it exists. So that is to say the climbing is not world-class. It's not stellar. I wouldn't tell you to drive from Boulder to go up there. I wouldn't tell you to drive from, you know, Lander to go up there. But I would say that if you lived in Montana, South Dakota, or North Dakota, or even Southern Canada, that, you know, heck yeah, why wouldn't you? It exists. You should go climb, especially if it's close to you. Right. So the climbing, most of the climbing happens on a lot of sandstone buttes. So the eastern side of North Dakota is completely flat. I mean, you're standing, when you're standing on the highway, you're looking across, you see the curvature of the earth. It's, it is flat. Wow. But as you move to the west, the, the plains start to give and ebb and flow into these nice rolling green hills of the, the northern badlands. And now when you drive through, you're still only seeing grassy hills or like basically just dirt piles. But if you know where to look, and you go around the right turn in the right country road, some of these grassy hills break into sheer sandstone cliff lines. And that's where most of the climbing in North Dakota happens. Okay, so how did you find these places? Uh, so, I mean, personally, I never thought there would be climbing out there. I didn't even find it until I moved away from North Dakota. Right. Um, but from the excerpt that you read in the beginning of the show, uh, someone had asked me if there was climbing in North Dakota. And my first react, my first response was, you know, no way. Like, I'm sure you could find some tiny little boulder maybe somewhere, but there's no climbing out there. But as the day went on, I kind of asked myself, like, huh, I guess I've never, you know, truly looked. You know, it'd be worth trying to find a spot, right? So what I did was what I call internet exploring. And it's where I just go on the internet and I use a multitude of resources to see if I can find, you know, drastic elevation changes um, specifically beautiful hikes maybe that people have taken photos of, like if there's any boulders or walls or anything like that. And after a number of hours, um, an embarrassing number of hours, I found a photo a hiker had taken of a distant sandstone wall. And it was so distant and it was so blurry and it was such a terrible photo that I couldn't tell if the wall was going to be uh, 100 feet tall or 6 feet tall. <laughs> right. <laughs> But either way, I figured this is the closest bet uh, we have to finding anything. And we drove up there a good 10, 15 hours to get up there. And we rediscovered Chimney Butte. So when, when we got to Chimney Butte, um, it turned out it was a solid 60 feet of climbing, which was far more than I could have ever have hoped. And from there that we just kind of got the bug. We're like, OK, how, how much climbing is actually in our home state? Like, we should let's do some exploring. Let's see what we can find. And after a good year and a half of exploring and connecting with, you know, uh, serendipitously connecting with other climbers who happen to be in the woodwork of the Badlands, 
we found two or three other buttes that housed climbs that had been there for a good 20 years that had been long forgotten from climbers past and have been discovering and putting up new lines ever since. Well, very cool. So how many routes total do you think you have in your guidebook? Uh, there's roughly 120, I believe, and that includes uh, rope climbs and boulder problems. Um, but there's far more out there. I, there's there's a lot of there's a few areas that are on private property that I didn't bother putting in. Um, there's a few areas that are so small that we didn't get all the routes or problems in there because they're so obscure and minuscule. And I and we also wanted to leave room for people to find their own adventure too. I mean, it's it's hard enough to find these places, so the the, the guidebook will hold your hand a little bit so you can get out there and find them. But, you know, we want to have some exploration, you know, some idea of adventure left. So we're not going to, you know, give everything that the the state has to offer for sure. (laughs) Well, that was part of the writing the guidebook that I really wanted to hear more about because I love the idea of saying, yeah, everybody knows people climbing Yosemite, but what could we find here? And Mm -hmm. I love the idea of, of going out and exploring a place with new eyes right? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, you guys probably had to get pretty stoked about that. I mean, here you're getting stoked about climbing in a place that people wouldn't think about climbing. Oh man, I'll tell you what. When we did these trips up there, I, we, were, we were all living in, in Denver at the time. So when we did these trips, I would work a 12-hour shift at work and I'd get off at 8 p.m. and we'd pack all of our stuff and we'd hit the road at 8.30 and we'd drive for 10 hours until we got into North Dakota and we'd sleep on the hot side of the highway as, as day broke and the meadow larks were waking up. And we'd sleep for a couple hours. And then we'd go out and explore new areas or put up new climbs or build trails or do what have you. So, yeah, to say the least, I'd say we had to be pretty stoked to keep doing that over and over and over again all year. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, we've never done a podcast on the adventure of the road trip, really. But that's that's oh, fun, too, you know. Oh, yeah. We got a lot of road grease on me. I'll tell you that for sure. (laughs) That's great. That's really cool. So how can people find your book? So uh, they can find it on the North Dakota Climbers Coalition website. And that website is ndclimberscoalition.com. And the book is called Northern Beauty, Rock Climbs of North Dakota. Northern Beauty, Rock Climbs of North Dakota. Yep. And beauty is spelled like a butte, B-U-T-T-E, and then Y. It's kind of a little pun. Very cool. And what was the website again? Uh, ndclimberscoalition.com. ndclimberscoalition.com. And we'll put that on the show notes so that people who are driving or something can uh, can go to adventuresportspodcast.com and get the link to all that kind of stuff. Well, I think it's really cool what you did there, Dakota. I, I think it's awesome. And the way that you found a way to share your love of the sport in a place where people wouldn't necessarily think about it, but also in a brand new way. So very cool. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you saying so. It's, it's, been, uh, it's been an adventure and an endeavor, and I'm really excited to get it out to everybody. Well, how can people uh, learn more about the American Alpine Club? Oh, yeah. So the American Alpine Club, you can just check out our website. It's AmericanAlpineClub.org. You can find info on all of our grants all the benefits that we get for our members, all the events that we hold all over the country. Uh, you can find everything there, yeah. Right on. So how can people get involved with the American Alpine Club? What if they want to do some trail work or just meet up with some people that have a, a common interest? Yeah, absolutely. So the best way is to search if there's a a, uh, a chapter in your area. So for example, we have the Denver chapter here. 
where you know you can get into contact with a membership coordinator or a chapter chair and there's always events to be volunteering for there's always something to be advocating for so yeah just kind of searching for your specific area in the american alpine club is the way to do it so how many members do you think you have nationwide oh man that's way above my pay grade (laughs) (laughs) but you get to meet quite a few people if you get involved i'm sure Oh, it's great. And, you know, I think the best part of it is, you know, when, whenever I go out and do events, like, you know, this this year we went to your Ice Festival and, you know, I had, you know, uh, eight members of the club volunteering for me. And a lot of them didn't have climbing partners or had never ice climbed before. Um, but when you when they came and volunteered with us, you know, they got room and board and they got access to uh, c- clinics for ice climbing. And they had partners basically built in because we we're all kind of one you know, community, one club. So it's really great. Yeah. I love it, man. So American Alpine org. Yep. Cool. Well, here's a, here's a question for you. After all that you've learned over the years, what advice would you give to your younger self about adventure and climbing? Wow. it's a really tough question. <laughs> um, what advice would I give to myself? You know, I don't, I don't know that you know, this isn't to say that I'm the perfect adventuring badass, but I don't know that I would give myself any advice. And the reason I say that is because for me, the heart of adventure isn't just going out and necessarily even following a guidebook or, you know, just going, going and following someone else's footsteps. For me personally, a lot of adventure is making mistakes and going out and doing things on your own and trying things for the first time and going out and even if it's not unknown, but if it's unknown to you, going out and going for it, that's when true adventure starts. So I don't, I can't say truthfully that I would go back in time and tell myself anything because all those mistakes and all those terrible, terrible things, places I ended up in because I made a bad idea, bad decision, like I didn't bring a blanket or I didn't bring a lighter or, or I got lost on the summit and I had to sleep on the summit or something. I would, I would never trade any of that stuff for the world. So I, 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 w- I would leave my past self alone to make his own mistakes. <laughs> I love it. That's a very good answer. Very, very cool. Right on, Dakota. Well, man, the clock got us really fast. I was enjoying our conversation so much, but we're, we're pretty much out of time. So one more time, what's the name of the book? Uh, the book is Northern Beauty, Rock Climbs of North Dakota. And they can get that at ndclimberscoalition.com. Yes, sir. And you can learn more about the American Alpine Club at AmericanAlpineClub.org. And what else do you have for us? Well, I'd just like to give a shout out and a big thanks to my publisher, Jasmine Menez, for working so hard on the book with me and really being really patient with uh, all the changes and edits I've given her. And my photographer, Matthew Eckelberg, for following me out on every single trip and taking photos over and over again and sending them to, sending them to me over and over again for every single time I accidentally deleted them or lost them or something. <laughs> right on. Oh, and there's one more thing I've got to, I've got to bring in here. A little bird told me that you have a film, Small Walls Film. Yeah. Uh, so a close friend of mine from Boulder, Jonathan Trites, is shooting a film called Small Walls. And it's about, you know, basically what we've been talking about, you know, adventure in the American Midwest, you know, rock climbing in North Dakota and Michigan and Missouri. And, you know, the spirit of adventure that's still out there in these unknown areas and climbers. Right on. So is it coming out on YouTube or is he going bigger than that? Uh, he is going to be p- publishing it. I believe his goal is late summer. Um, he's going to be doing the the film tours or the uh, 
submitting it to film festivals and such. So I can't I can't speak too much to when it's going to be out or what the the venue will be. Um, but I'm sure when it is out, you can find more information on it on the uh, North Dakota Climbers Coalition website. Right on. So all of you adventure sports people out there, watch for Small Walls film as it starts to break. Uh, it's going to be fun. I love the theme behind that. goes right along with what we're talking about today. So, wow, Dakota, thanks so much for coming on and sharing climbing with us. Absolutely. And if there is one more thing that I'd like to share, it's a little, it's a small, small blurb, I, oh, hopefully small, that I've written about um, why I appreciate uh, adventuring in the Midwest. And if you, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to sh- share it with you. Yeah, beauty man, do it. <clears throat> this is an excerpt from my journal. I was writing about uh, climbing in uh, So Ill, Illinois, South Illinois. Um, so here it goes. We join a campfire with a bunch of strangers from Chicago. They asked us if I was moving to Colorado for more adventure. I told them I would probably find less adventure out there. Here in the Midwest, you must be stoked. You must drive for hours to get anywhere. You must camp with your pals in the sticks, and you must crush all weekend just to make the drive worth it. Out there, out there in Colorado, I will probably end up sleeping in a nice, soft, safe bed more than ever. The Midwest has blessed me with not only great friends and unforgettable relationships, but also the fleeting opportunity for genuine adventure. Here there is still new territory to be discovered. Untamed cliff bands along lakes and rivers still waiting to be climbed. Have people explored, named, and claimed these places already? Sure, but as a climber and a dedicated student of the stone, there is still the opportunity to discover not uncharted territory, but untapped potential. These ancient metamorphic forms have been discovered hundreds of years ago by the natives and later again by the white settlers and pioneers. But when a climber rediscovers these forgotten cliffs, that's when the true potential and purpose finally shape and true discovery and adventure begin to take their own form as the thrilling art of climbing in the Midwest. Ah, beautiful, man. I love it. That's very, very cool. And I'm, I'm there with you because I did the same things in Northeastern Oklahoma and, and Northwestern Arkansas. So I've got it. I understand what you're talking about. Well, right on, man. I really appreciate you having me on. I feel like we really connected and it was, it was a good talking to you. The time really did fly. Yeah, dude, it was a blast. And so for all of our listeners out there, remember, as I always say, until the next show, get out there, have some fun. Coming up on Monday's episode, we've got Stefan Griebel. He founded the 500-mile Colorado Trail Race, which is a mountain bike race between Durango and Denver. Until then, get out and have some fun. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.